Are you in college or know someone who is? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2025. Live steps from the Colosseum with like-minded students and explore the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. Don't miss this life-changing opportunity. Limited spots are available. For more information, go to thomisticinstitute.org slash Rome. That's thomisticinstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So without then further ado, I'll get started. In his epistle to the Romans, Paul writes, even before they were born or had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose of election might continue, not by works, but by his call, Rebekah was told, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. It's Romans 9, 11 to 13. With brutal concision, Paul asserts the election of Jacob and rejection of Esau without regard to merit, yet also in the next verse, asserts that God's love and hatred are not unjust. What can this mean? Such a simple question admits of no simple answer. Fortunately, mercifully, my task here is not to answer that question, but far more simply to trace in broad outline the elegant and intricate answers of others. I will frame those answers in terms of predestination. Discussing predestination will require touching upon a number of related topics, especially grace, election, providence, and condemnation or reprobation. And I'm going to focus on predestination in Augustine of Hippo, Thomas Aquinas, and John Calvin, three figures temporally distant but with overlapping understandings. My aim will be to establish the central questions, tensions, and dispositions animating the three theologians' engagements with predestination, with particular attention to how each thinker frames the topic. So what is at stake in these discussions? Uh, To whom are they addressed? How and why? It can be useful to highlight the agreement between the three theologians, or as is often done, to emphasize the differences. My approach here will be to mention agreements and disagreements, but to focus primarily on the framing of, of each theologian's rhetorical aims. So to begin, Augustine of Hippo. Augustine of Hippo lived from 354 to 430, and his lengthy and remarkable career round its way through a meandering path of theological views, some of which he explicitly revised and rejected in his later life. Distressed by fundamental questions of good and evil, the young Augustine spent some nine years associated with the Manichees. The Manichees were an early religious group that affirmed a dualism of ultimate principles, namely good and evil, and they explained the experiences of struggle and failure of conflicting and competing impulses through the clash of ultimate good and evil played out within world history and within individual human beings. In breaking with the Manichees and eventually converting to the Catholic Christianity of his mother, Monica, 
Augustine conceptually and performatively affirmed one sole ultimate principle, namely the supremely good God. This affirmation necessitated rather different responses to fundamental questions pertaining to human freedom. A second theological controversy, the Pelagian controversy, indelibly stamped Augustine's mature works. Pelagius, who lived from about 360 to 418, was a British monk who earned renown in Italy for his asceticism and uncompromising expectations. When Alaric and the Visigoths menaced Rome, Pelagius and his young associate Caelestius joined the wave of migrants crossing the Mediterranean for the safer shores of Carthage. The Pelagian controversy began when Caelestius spoke in Carthage against infant baptism, which was a long-standing local practice. Debates surrounding the propriety and necessity of infant baptism allowed theologians to consider a tangled web of questions concerning sin, free will, and grace. Time does not permit any meaningful engagement with the various phases of the Pelagian controversy, but at the heart of the controversy, the question amounted to disagreements about the voluntary capacities after the fall had disfigured human freedom. Pelagius did not espouse the strong views later synonymous with Pelagianism. He was actually what's called a semi-Pelagian, but he was condemned at the Council of Carthage in 418. Debates on these questions outlived Pelagius, and Augustine's late writings never ignored the risks and temptations of Pelagianism. For Augustine, Pelagius's fundamental error rested investing human free will with some autonomous motion away from sin and towards God. In starkest contrast, Augustine stresses the will's bondage to sin and the absolute necessity for grace in order for human beings to will the good. Augustine touched upon predestination in various works throughout his career, though the most famous example is his late treatise on the predestination of the saints, written about 428 or 429. Ever the committed and skilled polemicist, Augustine devoted his considerable energies to articulating theological truths against errors as they arose and persisted. His writings tend towards the ad hoc rather than the systematic. The lingering errors framing on the predestination of the saints related principally to the Pelagian controversy, though Augustine never forgot the lessons learned in overcoming his infatuation with Manichaean dualism. Put otherwise, Augustine sought to traverse a narrow strait between a Manichaean view of human subjection to competing principles and a Pelagian view of human self-determination, even in the wake of sin. From the beginning of On the Predestination of the Saints, Augustine affirms faith as a divine gift. Fallen humanity cannot even begin to move away from its own sin and towards God without a prior divine action, namely the gift of faith. Humanity was created with the capacity for faith and retains that capacity through the fall and the despoilment of its nature. Yet the capacity for faith is not by itself sufficient for actually possessing faith. Beyond that general capacity, actual faith depends upon a special divine gift, a special grace. As Augustine remarks, quote, since in some persons the will is prepared by God and in others it is not, we must indeed distinguish what comes from his mercy and what comes from his judgment, end quote. 
Parsing God's mercy and God's judgment, as Augustine does here, demands some explanation. Divine simplicity excludes reading mercy and judgment as really distinct in God, but absolute divine simplicity does not exclude a multiplicity of distinct effects proceeding from one transcendent cause. These distinct effects are diversely named and understood without implying diversity within God. Judgment here signifies just condemnation for sin, while mercy indicates grace as an irresistible divine gift ordained before creation. The irresistible gift of divine grace softens hardened hearts. Augustine stresses this, lest anyone misconceive grace as freely bestowed upon all, but rejected only by those whose hearts are hardened against the divine will. The condemned mass of humanity, the mass of peditionis, includes all, save for the efficacy of grace, restoring and elevating select recipients. And those recipients, Augustine maintains, do absolutely nothing to deserve or otherwise occasion their reception of grace. Nothing within them, nothing they could do or will, could ever merit anything but condemnation without the prior bestowal of grace. At the same time, Augustine insists the grace of conversion irresistibly turns its recipients away from sin and towards God. Though some fifth century Christians found Augustine's insistence on the will's bondage to sin apart from grace, a mortal blow to free choice, and a fundamental challenge to the root logic of monasticism, more troubling still for others was the selectivity of grace's recipients. If grace irresistibly converts sinful wills to faith without concern for the worth of the recipient, why is it given to some but not to all? Phrased otherwise, why are many denied the wholly unmerited gift of grace? Augustine never ignored the power of these concerns, but his recognition of their power did not of itself suffice for answers. Augustine oft reminds his readers that divine mercy and judgment are inscrutable. What depends upon the divine will alone remains hidden from all creation unless divinely revealed. God's judgments, Augustine remarks, are perfectly just but inscrutable. When confronting the question why grace is not given to all, Augustine returns habitually to God's judgments as both just and inscrutable. This intends to comfort. He argues, quote, why this gift is not given to all should not disturb the believer who believes that from one man all have gone into condemnation, a condemnation undoubtedly most just, so much so that even if no one were freed therefrom, there would be no just complaint against God. It is evident from this that it is a great grace that many are delivered and recognize in those who are not delivered that which they themselves deserved, so that he who glories may glory, not in his own merits, which he observes as equaled in those who are condemned, but in the Lord. As to why God delivers this person rather than that one, how incomprehensible are his judgments and how unsearchable his ways. For it is better for us to hear, to listen, or to say, O oh man, who are you that replies against God, than to dare to explain, as if we knew, what God has chosen to keep a secret, God, who in any event could not will anything unjust." End quote. 
the absolute justness and inscrutability of the divine will serve as revealed premises in Augustine's reasonings concerning grace, and his approach to grace frames his treatment of predestination. And between grace and, and predestination, he writes, the only difference is this, that predestination is the preparation for grace, while grace is the gift itself. Predestination depends upon foreknowledge, but is not synonymous with it. Predestination narrowly concerns the good or what God will accomplish in history, whereas foreknowledge broadly includes as well whatever happens apart from God accomplishing it, such as sin. The very category of things foreknown but not worked by God presents no small perplexity. Without pretending to unravel that per perplexity or to suggest that Augustine himself successfully did so, I will simply note that Augustine steadfastly maintained divine foreknowledge neither compelled nor imposed necessity upon future contingents. Subsequent thinkers articulated more clearly the theological and philosophical conditions for the possibility of this view in ever more intricate manners. What must at minimum be noted here is that Augustine carefully balances his view on the thin edge separating a deterministic divine causality and an indeterminacy of the cosmic narrative. A thinker of no mean capacity, Augustine regularly held together in tension a variety of propositions he deemed true and necessary, even while humbly acknowledging his inability to resolve that tension. I'm going to switch now to talking about Thomas Aquinas. So, Augustine of Hippo proved foundational for the Western Christian tradition, yet the sheer extent of his writings ensured that not all of his views were equally known or equally important. The theological controversies formative for his thought were even less known. The great scholastic theologian and Dominican friar Thomas Aquinas, who lived from 1225 to 1274, was, at least in many respects, a notable exception to this general rule. Through assiduous research, Thomas recovered a litany of patristic and conciliar texts otherwise unknown or unused during the 13th century. Among these texts were many of Augustine's anti-Pelagian considerations of grace, election, and predestination, works that shaped Thomas's mature considerations of the same topics. Thomas's unfinished masterpiece, the Summa Theologiae, integrates questions of predestination and providence. He defines providence as the ratio ordinus rerum infinum, the reason for the order of things into an end or the plan for the order of things into an end. In the process of elaborating this notion, Thomas employs a series of vital distinctions and specifications. He distinguishes primary and secondary causality and specifies infallibility, necessity, and contingency as the proper categories for elaborating the concordance of primary and secondary causality. Some of this gets technical, so forgive me, but hopefully it'll be sufficiently clear. God exercises primary causality as the source and goal of all that is. The causality of every categorical existence, of every individual created thing, unfolds within this larger matrix of God's causality and depends absolutely upon that primary causality. Such dependence, and in some sense containment, marks the causality of existence as secondary in that it could not exist but for God's primary causality. Thomas affirms that the more primary a cause, the more universal, 
and the more universal, the more intimate to all things. God as primary cause of everything's very existence operates universally in and through things in accord with their natures. So God's primary causality is not something external and domineering that is imposed upon creatures, but it's rather an internal empowerment for things to be themselves. Difficult as it can be to think this, it must be kept in mind. When responding to the concern that providence imposes necessity upon things, Thomas articulates his denial through the categories of infallibility, necessity, and contingency. Everything that happens in the cosmos infallibly happens exactly as God wills it to happen. Why does this infallible fulfillment of the divine will not impose necessity? It is because, Thomas argues, the infallible fulfillment of the divine will works in and through secondary causes. When those secondary causes are necessary, their effects are necessary. When those secondary causes are contingent, their effects are contingent. So stated otherwise, necessity and contingency are categories pertaining to secondary causality rather than to God's qualitatively different and infallible primary causality. God's provident causality works infallibly and interiorly through the causal powers of created things. So these very brief remarks on providence uh, provide some essential background for interpreting predestination in Aquinas. The Summa Theologiae's analysis of predestination follows an orderly and logical unfolding of topics. I will deviate from the careful architecture of Thomas's theological edifice for simplicity and clarity. There are obvious dangers in that, but hopefully some gains. Rational creatures, Thomas holds, are characterized by a twofold end, one proportion to nature and another exceeding the faculties of or any proportion to nature. This second and excessive end is the eternal and ecstatic life of the beatific vision. Rational creatures lack any active natural potency for achieving this end, but they can be led and elevated to that end through divine action. A ratio, a reason or a plan, precedes this elevating guidance, and it is precisely this reason or plan that Thomas designates predestination. What should be clear is how predestination repeats the pattern of providence within a narrower frame of reference. On a related point, since predestination names the plan or the reason of God's elevation of human beings to a supernatural end, predestination is a reality in God predestinating individuals rather than in the individuals predestined. The Summa Theologiae conveys this structurally by treating providence and predestination under the broad heading of the divine nature. And I'll come back to this ordering of topics when I talk about Calvin. As with providence more generally, Thomas insists the effect of predestination follows most certainly and infallibly, yet predestination does not impose necessity. Unsurprisingly, the explanation for this curiosity mirrors the general explanation given with providence. The divine will infallibly works its effect, but does so through the particular natures of the appropriate secondary causes, which can be either contingent or necessary. Predestination pertains to rational beings and so operates its effect through the contingent causality of those very rational beings receiving divine grace. As Thomas concludes, 
The order of predestination is certain, yet it does not take away free choice from which the effect of predestination comes to be contingently. Predestination's certainty and infallibility further imply that the number of the predestination, uh, predestined is certain and the identity of the predestined is certain. In other words, prior to creation, divine predestination has certainly and infallibly determined the definite number and identity of grace's recipients, while the actual fulfillment of predestination occurs through individual recipients, free choice, and contingent secondary causality. Despite the conundrum of rational beings contingently causing what God infallibly wills, these aspects of predestination in Thomas seemingly occasion no moral offense. The case is perhaps different with his discussion of reprobation. Thomas neither falters in nor shies away from affirming the symmetrical implications of God predestining some for glory. He argues, quote, God condemns some. It was affirmed above that predestination is part of providence. Permitting some defect amongst the things falling within providence itself pertains to providence. Since through divine providence, human beings are ordered into eternal life, it pertains as well to divine providence that it permits some to fall short of that end. This is to condemn. Just as predestination is part of providence with respect to those divinely ordered into eternal life, so too is condemnation part of providence with respect to those who fall short of that end. Condemnation, accordingly, does not only name foreknowledge, but adds to that something according to reason, a plan or an order, just as does providence. For just as predestination includes the will for conferring grace and glory, condemnation includes the will for permitting someone to fall into fault and to impose the penalty of damnation for that fault." End quote. There is much compactly conveyed here. At the most basic level, Thomas folds both predestination and condemnation within the broader scope of providence, with the consequence that neither predestination nor condemnation could be simply a matter of foreknowledge. So predestination is not simply God's perfect prediction of what specific people will freely do in the future. Beyond foreknowledge, providence designates causation. The question, though, is what type of causation? Thomas distinguishes the causation of predestination and of reprobation or condemnation. Predestination causes grace and glory, but it does so according to a temporal difference, causing grace as something perceptible in the present and causing glory as what is expected in the future life. Condemnation, in contrast, is not the cause of what is in the present, namely fault, but it is the cause of the dereliction of God. It is the cause of what will be meted out in the future, namely eternal punishment. Fault, however, comes from the free choice of the one condemned and deserted by grace. This specifies a basic theological disposition articulated already in Augustine. The unmerited reception of grace in the present is the effect of predestination, but also the cause of glory. Crucially for Thomas, this happens through the cooperation of human free choice, willing the good as it is restored and elevated by grace. 
despite any temptation to view the withholding of grace as the present cause of future punishment, condemnation does not function as a cause in the present. Human fault is itself the present cause of future punishment and the withholding of grace. Later in the Summa, Thomas parses out the various and complex functions of grace as it works to restore and to elevate, and as it is both operative and cooperative. Since the end of eternal life exceeds the faculties of any, of and pro any proportion to human nature, even apart from sin, grace would have been necessary to elevate human beings to their supernatural end. After the fall, the fault of sin functions as cause for the withholding of elevating grace. The fault of sin cannot simply by itself cause the withholding of what is variously termed provenient grace, the operative grace of conversion, or the grace of faith. Were that the case, no one would receive grace. Again, we return to the central concern. If, as Paul announces in Romans, all are under the power of sin, why do some receive a grace withheld from others? Thomas responds first by exploring election and then the causes of election. Predestination presupposes God willing an individual's salvation, which relates to election and love. When applied to God, we must think these in the reverse from their order amongst human beings. Thomas holds that we choose what we love based on what we judge to be good. So, the good of things precedes our choosing to love them. In contrast, God's will, quote, by which God wills someone's good in loving her, causes the good from before she possesses anything else. Thus, love presupposes election, according to reason, and election presupposes predestination. So all the predestined are elected and loved, end quote. So God's act of loving is a select preference for some over others, and that uh, select preference causes the good in those loved and chosen. So predestination makes those predestined lovable. There are two aspects of Thomas's presentation I want to stress here, and both hinge on how he frames the topic. The first and more obvious is that divine election precedes any good in the individual elected that would cause or in itself justify love and election. This restates in different terms Augustine's emphasis on the absolute priority of grace. Second, Thomas does not merely articulate the order of election, love and goodness in God, but carefully contrasts that with their order in human election and love. Nothing necessitates this contrast for specifying divine election, but the contrast functions not only as illumination, but also as reprimand for human sensibilities, urging a moral discomfort, if not outrage, regarding what we might judge an unequal and unfair response to an equality of worth, or better, an equality of worthlessness. Thomas here suggests to the reader that any such moral discomfort is all fundamentally wrong. Questioning why God responds differently to human beings uniformly immersed in sin can never receive an adequate answer because it presumes falsely that God responds. Appreciating, insofar as is possible, that and how divine election precedes and causes goodness rather than responds to it serves as essential framing for predestination. It also provides the short answer 
to the question whether God's foreknowledge of future merit is the cause of predestination. No, Aquinas is clear. Predestination causes grace and grace causes merit. The effect of predestination cannot be the cause of or reason for predestination. And so foreknowledge of future merit cannot cause predestination. To this basic principle, Thomas adds many further specifications. The first reminds readers that the primary cause works in and through secondary causes according to their mode of their natures. And so what is through free choice is from predestination. If merit does not and cannot cause predestination, how does one explain reprobation? While respecting proper epistemic limits when considering individual cases, Thomas dares to offer a general rationale for reprobation. He writes, the reason or the plan or order for the predestination of some and the reprobation of others should be taken from the divine goodness itself. God is said to have made all things through the divine goodness so that the divine goodness may be represented in things. It is necessary that the divine goodness, which in itself is one and simple, be represented diversely in things created, since created things cannot attain to the divine simplicity. Hence, the universe's completion required diverse grades of things, some holding a high place and others a low place in the universe. In order to preserve this diversity of grades in things, God permits some evils, lest many good things be impeded." End quote. For Thomas, the difficult and demanding topic of predestination functions specifically within the general metaphysical grammar of God infallibly causing all that was and is and will be through both necessary and contingent secondary causes. The election or reprobation of individuals remains shrouded in mystery, but the mechanism through which that mysterious love unfolds is God's transcendent, universal, and primary causality, without which nothing other than God would be. So I'm going to switch now to talking about John Calvin a little bit. Thomas Aquinas' teaching on predestination integrated Augustine's stress on the absolute priority of grace with the methods and sources of scholasticism. That integration translated Augustine's polemic force and his humble acceptance of cognitive tension into a systematic investigation of essential theological and moral topics. Treating predestination systematically entails its own difficulties, but the Summa Theologiae articulates a structural coherence for predestination, lacking in ad hoc polemics. Various reformers during the early 16th century, most notably Martin Luther, prioritized the rhetorical force and raging fires of such ad hoc polemics over the smoldering coals of lengthy scholastic treatises. John Calvin, who lived from 1509 to 1564, though sharing many of Luther's criticisms of the Catholic Church, sought a different balance or integration of systematic and philosophical rigor with Augustine's insistence on humbly accepting human limitations. In this sense, Calvin combined Augustine's Pauline framing of predestination in terms of grace and election with Thomas's interest in systematically folding predestination within the larger scope of God's providential ordering of all that is. Calvin wrote in a context of reforming criticism directed against Catholic practices regarded by him as embodying the most unevangelical of emphases on works righteousness. 
His theological style differed dramatically from Luther's pugilism. And while Luther's articulations of grace remained intensely personal, Calvin's tended rather to focus on the collective, the group, the community of the elect. He announces predestination as a teaching particularly directed towards the community of the elect. And we must keep this in mind in order to discern what is distinctive in his pre presentation. Without attending carefully to framing questions, the distinction can lose its focus. Calvin acknowledges difficulties or perceived difficulties in his very introduction of predestination. He writes, a baffling question, this seems to many, for they think nothing more inconsistent than that our common multitude of men should, of, uh, out of the common multitude of men, some should be predestined to salvation, others to destruction. Through precise argumentation and scriptural reasoning, Calvin endeavors to remove any appearance of inconsistency and to do so without presumptuously declaring as certain and comprehensible what lies hidden in the will of God. The difficulty with predestination lies not simply in the reality itself, but more so in the obscurities, confusions, and dangers introduced by human curiosity. Given this, Calvin demarcates strictly what can be investigated and how. He argues to seek any other knowledge of predestination than what the word of God discloses is not less insane than if one should purpose to walk in pathless waste or to see in darkness, wherein there is a certain learned, uh, um, sorry, and let us not be ashamed to be ignorant of something in this matter, wherein there is a certain learned ignorance, end quote. To this upper limit, Calvin adds a lower limit, forbidding any to retreat from proclaiming predestination, lest they exceed their epistemic warrant. To do so would express an ingratitude towards what has been revealed. The straight flowing between the cardibus of impermissible inquisitiveness and the scylla of excessive silence is indeed narrow. Predestination necessarily involves foreknowledge. Calvin likens the divine foreknowledge to an eternal present. All the temporally distant moments of past, present, and future are equally present to God. This standard theological move does not, however, imply that predestination merely reflects or responds to human actions or volitions seen by God before their enactment along a temporal spectrum. We call predestination God's eternal decree, he writes, by which he compacted with himself what he willed to become of each man. For all are not created in equal condition. Rather, eternal life is foreordained for some, eternal damnation for others. There are two main points upon which I would like to expand upon here. So unlike Thomas and Augustine, Calvin frames the election of some to eternal life and the damnation of others to eternal torment as strictly parallel. This is the first point to explore and stress. Second, Calvin holds that without the reprobation of some, God's grace would be indiscriminate and consequently not free. The first point is often named double predestination to, to distinguish it from the single predestination taught by Augustine and Thomas Aquinas. That is, Augustine and Thomas argue for the predestination of the elect grounded solely in the hidden divine will, but argue for the condemnation of the reprobate based upon what 
when grace is withheld, justice demands and recompense for sin. Calvin finds this wholly inadequate. Election and reprobation both depend upon God's eternal decree, not simply on supertemporal divine foreknowledge. Calvin takes Paul's manifest teaching to be that the foundation of divine predestination is not in works. This applies to reprobation just as much as to election. Paul makes this clear. Calvin writes, then when he raised the objection, whether God is unjust, he does not make use of what would have been the surest and clearest defense of his righteousness, that God recompensed Esau according to his own evil intention. Instead, he contents himself with a different solution, that the reprobate are raised up to the end that through them God's glory may be revealed." End quote. Calvin does not, in his affirmation of double predestination, reject the basic distinction of divine mercy and judgment forwarded by Augustine, but he does redirect it. He writes, as scripture then clearly shows, we say that God once established by his eternal and unchangeable plan, those whom he long before determined once for all to receive into salvation, and those whom, on the other hand, he would devote to destruction. We assert that with respect to the elect, this plan was founded upon his freely given mercy without regard to human worth, but by his just and irreprehensible but incomprehensible judgment, he has barred the door of life to those whom he has given over to damnation." End quote. Here, judgment does not name the condemnation of sin, but rather an incomprehensible eternal decree. Calvin reiterates that those whom God passes over, he condemns. And this he does for no other reason than that he wills to exclude them from the inheritance which he predestines for his own children. This brings me back to the second point. Calvin affirms the eternal and incomprehensible decree of condemnation without apology or obvious discomfort. Why? Does this reflect a callous dismissal of the reprobate together with an arrogant inclusion of oneself amongst the elect? For Calvin, the mysterious discrimination involved in separating the elect from the reprobate undergirds God's absolute freedom in dispensing grace. The absolute freedom of God's eternal decree ought to humble any and all recipients of grace. And those recipients are not simply arrogantly aggregating themselves within the community of the elect, but rather are able to read the marks of election made legible through justification and sanctification. The lesson of election is humility rather than hubris, and that lesson depends entirely upon appreciating grace's radical freedom. Calvin rails against the suggestion that grace were better meted out to all, that predestination emerges from God's free decision without consideration for human merit is evident in that God, quote, does not indiscriminately adopt all into the hope of salvation, but gives to some what he denies to others, end quote. Calvin affirms the very inequality of his grace proves that it is free. Perhaps, but this seems a cold and even cruel freedom to the reprobate. Yet Calvin insists the doctrine of double predestination is meant for the elect rather than for the reprobate. A phrase commonly deployed in this respect is that Calvin taught predestination or double predestination in the shadow of the cross or in the shadow of grace. 
He urges this rhetorically and structurally, making a strong divergence from the systematic ordering of predestination, for example, in Thomas's Summa Theologiae. Thomas follows standard scholastic conventions in treating providence and predestination under the broad umbrella of the divine nature. Calvin raises the question of predestination in the third book of his Institutes, the book de dedicated to the manner in which grace is received and the effects consequent upon its reception. So instead of discussing predestination while considering God or the divine nature, Calvin raises the question within the context of grace as received. One receives grace as predestined and so can both take comfort in one's election and humbly express gratitude for one's election that depends solely on God's free eternal decree rather than the recipient's merit. The choice is often made to emphasize similarities or differences between these three, but less often to balance or integrate both. Obscuring either for the other reflects a limited approach to Augustine, Thomas, and Calvin, as well as to the very topic of predestination. Paul's epistle to the Romans developed themes of election from the Hebrew scriptures, focusing on the priority and superiority of God's eternal decree. For all its rhetorical force, Romans does not offer a systematic account of predestination, much less a systematic theology. Its bald affirmations have, for nearly two millennia, inspired and unsettled readers, including the three examined here. The task of these theologians was to preserve, echo, or redirect the rhetorical force of Pauline treatments of predestination, election, and grace, but they deployed that rhetorical force differently. That is the element I've tried to emphasize here. Augustine, Thomas, and Calvin, in related but different ways, stressed predestination as essential to Christian theology. To be sure, all three frame predestination distinctly, but striking continuities are apparent through the diversity of framings. All three share a steadfast commitment to the absolute priority of grace or of God's action. Predestination does not respond to or merely anticipate future good works of grace's recipients. We cannot account for predestination by appeal to human actions, but only through recourse to the inscrutable, incomprehensible, or otherwise hidden divine will. All three, however, frame differently this commitment to predestination. Augustine devoted attention primarily to articulating the absolute priority of grace against any suggestion that human beings could, through their own volition, unbound themselves to sin or even seek assistance to change their state. On the predestination of the saints argues that grace irresistibly moves the sinner away from sin and towards God, that grace is the effect of predestination and that predestination depends singly upon the divine will. Thomas and Calvin developed different aspects and emphases from Augustine in their own presentations. Thomas shares fully Augustine's commitment to the absolute priority of grace, but frames his treatment of predestination in terms of God's providential ordering of all reality, rather than in terms of human incapacities. Predestination, Thomas repeats, names a reality in God rather than in human beings. The Summa Theologiae's discussion of predestination extends and specifies the presentation of providence with both elucidating, insofar as possible, the manner in which God's transcendent and primary causality infallibly causes all that God wills to happen and does so 
through both necessary and contingent modes of secondary causality. Calvin also shares the commitment to the absolute priority of grace, but frames this priority in terms of God's eternal decree, freely to dispose grace to whomsoever God wills. Calvin addresses those who find themselves marked by grace and does so for the twofold purpose of promoting gratitude and of promoting humility. Such uncompromising emphasis on God's eternal decree leads Calvin to affirm God's prior decision not only to elect some, but also to condemn others. Just as election takes no account of future human actions, so too condemnation proceeds and takes no account of those actions. In short, Calvin refuses the basic strategy of Augustine and Thomas to present the reprobate as condemning themselves through their sin. No, Calvin argues, God has condemned them from before. The reprobate were always to be condemned. Such was the eternal decree. Augustine's mature discussions of predestination focus all attention on the absolute priority and necessity of grace. Without grace, human beings can will and accomplish nothing salutary. Any Pelagian allowance of human effort causing or occasion, occasioning or voluntarily accepting grace undoes Paul's expression of the gospel message, promoting in the stead of proper humility an illicit and unwarranted pride in human abilities. Conversion does not beckon grace. Grace causes conversion. But converted and aided by grace, human beings can begin to merit salvation through cultivating their one true end of loving God above all and loving all else in God. For Augustine, predestination teaches, even urges humility. Therein lies its theological force and the incapacity of the human intellect to resolve the tensions between its several convictions only serves to reinforce the message and goal of humility. Thomas addressed predestination less to undermine a specific and erroneous theological tendency like Pelagianism and more to construct a systematic account of God as efficient and final cause of all. The rhetorical force of predestination within the Summa rests in its rigor and its structural connection to topics dispersed throughout the work's various parts. The tensions edifying for Augustine become in Thomas carefully managed internal stresses that precisely through the diverse vectors of affirmation strengthen the whole. The way that I always explain this is I do furniture makings. This is what makes sense to me. Have you ever seen Windsor chairs, chairs that are what are called staked furniture? Really good Windsor chair makers, you know, they can't get the angles absolutely perfect, but they can get them really, really close, you know, maybe half a degree off. And with that, they can assemble the chair together so it goes together tightly. If you're a really poor chair maker, your angles are off by a couple degrees and it either won't go together or only with, you know, a bigger mallet or you break it apart. With modern CNC machining, they can make Windsor chairs where all the angles are just perfect. All the angles are exact. And those chairs slip together perfectly, but they fall apart right away because they don't have the internal tensions that help them manage the stresses placed on a chair. So when, I think you, when you think about scholastic theology and like Thomas's, he's not creating a perfect system that lines up like the CNC version of a chair, but he is a master craftsman who is making those tolerances so tight that it does come together, but it comes together such that it can manage all the external stresses you would place on the system. Calvin relieves the tensions within predestination 
through specifying the audience as the elect, and through advocating consistent application of God's eternal decree among the elect and reprobate. Predestination conveys humility as well as comfort. Humility in that God eternally decreed that the elect would receive grace and thereby achieve salvation apart from any merit or effort on their own. Comfort in the elect were, without regard to merit, and mysteriously created for the reception of grace and were not amongst those eternally determined to be created for condemnation. The rhetorical force of predestination leans equally on humility and comfort for Calvin in a novel fashion. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Romans 9.13. Augustine reads this as clear affirmation of the absolute priority of grace and necessity of humility. Thomas labors to weave this thread into a coherent tapestry of divine causality within the created order in which grace works through and completes or perfects nature. Calvin takes this as addressed strictly to Jacob, and so is balancing humility with comfort for the elect. Regardless of Paul's own understanding, predestination and the general notion of an eternal divine decree electing some from before their creation to receive grace and through that unmerited gift achieve or receive salvation seems to undermine many notions of human freedom and capacities. Worse, however, is the notion that God withholds from others the grace necessary to preserve them from condemnation, and that this very act of withholding stems from God's eternal decree, quite apart from the actions of the individuals in question. The cause of predestination lies in the divine will alone, affirming the reason for God electing some and rejecting others to be a theological mystery is categorically different from denying there to be a reason. For all three theologians we discussed here, nothing less than everything depends upon that distinction. Mystery tends to unsettle, being often difficult to discern from the reasonless or the purposeless. But following Aristotle, they would affirm that God and nature do nothing that is pointless. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.